Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're glad you joined us today, and we're glad you joined in for our study of the book of Revelation. We pray that it blesses you and encourages you, that it puts the fight back into your soul. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out, newriverchurch.org. So this morning's message is a heavy one, and... Uh, I just pray that God can take this. Um, I can't tell you how much I've wrestled with this. Um, pages and pages of notes, but so we're going to do this today and uh, let the Lord do what he wants to do. Um, this morning, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11, four chapters. So that's part of why it's heavy, just because there's a lot of material and not much time to cover it. And you say, well, why do we got to do four whole chapters? Because if we're going to, because this is the text, um, you know, I mean, if, I mean, it was written that way. So in order for us to get the whole gist of what is being said in this section, we have to cover the four chapters. It's part of how, one of the things we've learned in our study so far is you can get pretty wacky in Revelation. It's pretty easy, isn't it, to, to pick out a favorite phrase or something like that and go nuts with it, and we're really doing our best to not do that. And so to do that, we've got to stay honest and stay true to it, so that means we've got to cover Revelation 8, 9, 10, and 11 this morning to get the whole thrust of these seven trumpets that we're looking at today. But it's also heavy this morning for this reason. This morning we see the kindness of God colliding with the stubbornness of mankind. What happens when God's kindness collides with our stubbornness? And I, and I want to begin by asking us this question. Like, how much pain do you have to endure before you repent? At what point is your breaking point where you say, enough's enough, I've experienced enough pain and heartache, I've experienced enough consequences from my poor choices, and therefore I am now making a change? Like, where is your breaking point? This morning we see that the capacity for us as human beings to endure great pain without ever breaking is really high. We are extremely stubborn. <laughs> we are. Um, you know, I know a lot of people don't believe this, but I actually have struggled with my weight my whole life. And I know people look at me funny when I say that. I get it. But 28 years ago, I hit my max. I remember hitting, I stepped on the scale. It was 270. And I had a 38 waist size, and, I, and even that was tight, and it was stretching it, right? And I knew 40 was the next one, and that was my breaking point. That's when I said, no more. I am not getting size 40 pants. I'm not doing it. Now, I'm not dissing anybody who has a 40 waist size or more, or somebody who weighs more than 270s. Please hear my heart. I'm just telling you, for me, that was my breaking point. I stood on the scale, and I said, that enough's enough. That's when I started to make some changes. That was 28 years ago. 
I just say that to say, where's your breaking point? We all have it. Some of us go longer without breaking. And you understand that the longer you go without breaking, the harder it gets and the worse it gets and the more pain and heartache is solved. It is, you know, continues. So that being said, we come into Revelation and we learned this last week that God actually in his kindness allows sin to ripen and do its ugly worst so that we can see it and repent from it because otherwise we don't normally see it. And, and you say, well, wait a second. Does that mean that God approves of evil? Let me just clarify this. God does not approve of evil. God is holy. God is, as, God is opposed to sin and evil as you can get. And God is actively working to eradicate sin and evil from human existence. You say, well, why doesn't God just step down and destroy the whole thing at once? Because sin has so entwined itself and embedded itself in the very human existence that if God were to do that, he would destroy you. And he loves you. He hates your sin, but he loves you. So he's working to get rid of it. And at times, he does allow it to bubble up so that we can see it and repent from it. We're living this right now, my friends. Think about it. Every day on your news, we're pointing fingers. We see the results of sin. We see what's happening in Ukraine. And, and look at what we do or look at what we don't do. The talking heads, the pundits, everybody on social media, they're wagging their fingers and casting their judgmental glances, and they say, look how evil that is over there. That is evil, evil, evil. And yet, nobody wants to stop and realize that the only difference between you and Mr. Putin is he's the president of a country. The same evil that leads him to do what he does also has influence in your heart and soul. But you see, you see what we do? Rather than fall on our knees and say, oh God, our sin is ugly. God, help us. Help us, God. We don't do that, do we? We wag our fingers. We talk. We post mean stuff. We, all that. Friends, the kindness of God collides with the stubbornness of mankind. And a lot of people get hurt as a result. And the question has to be, where's our breaking point? At what point will we see our sin and run to God for help? C.S. Lewis had said this in one of his big quotes. He said, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I don't hear us waking up yet. And we see this in Revelation. So John is writing this book, as we've said, and he has been working hard to help us to see this very thing. 
And he does it by coming at it from four different angles. Last Sunday, we noticed that he, he talked about this scroll that was in, that's in God's hand. And the scroll is sealed with seven wax seals. And, and then each time a seal is opened, more bad things happened. Right? And then this morning, we're going to look at these seven trumpets that blast. And they're given the same message. And then next Sunday, there's a big battle. And then in two weeks from today, there's seven bowls of wrath. And all four of these images are all pointing to the same thing. He's trying to help us to see that this evil is at work in our hearts, and we need to repent from it. We need, we need to cry. We need to wave the white flag of surrender and say enough's enough. See? And so John's trying to bring us to this breaking point. And like I said last Sunday, because we're so stubborn, it just gets uglier and uglier and uglier as we see today. So now let's dive in. How's that for a setup? Revelation chapter 8. Now last Sunday, the seals, the seven seals that sealed the scroll in God's hand, they, they manifested themselves largely in the kinds of um, sins that people commit against one another, you know, conquering and economic, uh, you know, disparity and um, disease and just the kind of things that we do to each other. The trumpets would fall more along the category of natural disasters. So here we come. I'm just going to skim it. We start in Revelation chapter 8, verse 6, but we need to skim it, but you got to see the, the the gist of it. So here we go. Fast. Revelation chapter 8, verse uh, 7. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail, fire mixed with blood, hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth is burned up. A third of the trees are burned up. All the grass was burned up. Second angel sounded his trumpet. Something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, thrown into the sea. Third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed. I guess ships can't float on blood. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. Wormwood in Greek literally means undrinkable. It also gets translated as bitter. We see this next. A third of the waters turned bitter. And many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an angle, an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, whoa, 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 to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. So wait a second. If the first four weren't bad enough, this eagle goes flying through with these, the trinity of woes, saying, buckle up, planet Earth. It's getting worse. Wow. We're, we're surrounded on the ash heap of our planet. It's third of the water's blood third of the people are dead. I mean, it's bad. The smoke is rising up, vegetation gone. And he's saying, it's going to get worse. So here comes the three woes. Now, little hint, we're only going to cover two of the woes today. 
the third woe gets dealt with last next Sunday, okay? So the next two woes, the, the, the two of the three woes are the next two trumpets. The first woe is the fifth trumpet. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. That star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So the people who have the seal of God on their foreheads don't get stung by these nasty-looking things, but everybody else does. So God's drawing a distinction between his people and the rest of the world. Do you see that? And you keep on reading, and these locusts are ugly. I mean, they're, hit, they're like something out of a horror movie, these locusts. You see it down here in verse 7? They look like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they've got crowns, something like crowns of gold. They've got human-looking faces. Their hair's like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. I mean, they're hideous. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings is like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions, and in their tails they had the power to torment people for five months. So good news is it's, only, it's temporary, five months, but it's a miserable five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, that is destroyer. And then look at the first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. So we have three woes. The first woe is the fifth trumpet, and it's bad. These locusts, I mean, and they're, let's be honest, they're not locusts. I mean, they're, de they're demons. They're clearly coming out of hell. They're being led by the destroyer. It's another word for Satan. And they're basically inflicting all kinds of hell on people on the planet. But the key to remember in this fifth trumpet is this. There's a distinction being made, and I'm going to circle back to this, a distinction between God's people and everybody else. Now the sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four, horn, uh, coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God, and this trumpet is blown, and what happens? Verse 15 um, they release and kill a third of mankind. And then the horses and riders, how do they kill a third of mankind? Down in verse 18, the third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of these things' mouths, okay? The, um, wow. So a third of humanity is killed. Do you get the picture? Earth is a wasteland, isn't it? Now let me ask us, where's our breaking point? Is this our breaking point? Look at verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons, idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor do they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So 
these six trumpets leave planet Earth in an ash heap, and the peoples surviving all of this, it says, still do not repent. Now, did you happen to catch the connection at all? Does any of this sound similar to you, Bible experts? If you know the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament, where Moses, you know, the people of, people of Israel, they're slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God raises up Moses to set them free, and, and he tells Pharaoh, set my people free, and Pharaoh says no. And then what does God do? He has to convince Pharaoh to let the people go, and he does that with 10 different plagues. And some of these plagues, I mean, now it's not identical, not at all, but it's definitely reminiscent of those plagues. You've got water that gets turned to blood. You've got the sky that goes dark. You have people dying. I mean, it's very similar, just not exact. You, you even have locusts, although these locusts are worse than their locusts, but you've got locusts, right? So there's similarities. And also, the other similarity is the distinction between God's people and the people of earth. In the 10 plagues, the people of Israel, they actually did not have to suffer all of those 10 plagues. I mean, they did some of them. They had flies in their soup, and they had some of the things, but they didn't have all of them. When it came to the darkness, Israel was kept in light. Egypt was in dark. When it came to the killing of the firstborn, because Israel had the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, their firstborn were spared. Everybody else died. So God drew a distinction between his people and the people of Egypt, and he does the same thing here. And there's one other similarity between the Exodus and these six trumpets that we don't want to miss. How did Pharaoh respond when he was getting pummeled? Did he get soft? Did he respond with repentance? No, he didn't at all, did he? The Bible says his heart became more and more hardened. And that's exactly how these people respond to these plagues, don't they? They still do not repent. Which brings us back to that question. How much pain do you have to experience before you repent? Where is your breaking point? See? And you know what we do? Instead of repent, we deflect. We do everything we can instead of repent. We deflect. You say, what's that? Deflection is this. It's the, it's the alcoholic who blames his wife for his addiction. It's the wife who blames her husband for her bad choices. It's the uh, rebellious teenager who blames his rebellion on his parents' failures. It's the, the person who blames the hypocrisy of a few Christians as a reason for why they don't become a Christian. It's deflection. And do you not hear some of the echoes of it in our own culture to this day? Like we do, the, we do everything we can to avoid repenting, don't we? Everybody knows that what we're doing doesn't work. We see our kids being more confused. We see our economy in the tank. We see families messed up. 
We see division like we've never seen it before. I mean, we all know this is not working. And yet, nobody waves the white flag. Instead, we dig in our heels and we insist that, that our problem is, you know, if we could just get those freedom-loving truckers to stop honking their horns, everything would be okay. If we could, if we could just get those, those right-wing evangelicals to stop shoving their morality down our throat, everything would be okay. We deflect. Instead of saying, oh, God, help us, it's where we're at. We're living this right here. See? And make no mistake, you have the same tendency. Even you say, well, yeah, but I'm a Christian. Well, yeah. listen, can I ask you something? Um, when, when you know that you need to apologize for something, like how long does it take you to actually do that? <laughs> Just saying. Am I not calling out the, like, our human tendency? Are we not a stubborn lot? We are. Okay, so this message is not just for all those evil people out there. It's for us too. It's for all of us. We need to see this in ourselves. I, I do everything I can except repent. And John is saying, oh, don't do that. It just gets worse. Now, chapter 10, after all that heaviness, John lightens it up a little bit, which is good because, in the, because we need that, don't we? It's like, oh, man, okay, I'm heavy now. You've got me pinned against the wall. And then John says, he starts in chapter 10, and he, he gives us this vision of this angel. Now, it's the same thing. We saw him do the same thing last week when we talked through the seven seals. In between the, in between the, the, the sixth seal and the seventh seal, right, in between those two, there was an interlude where John took a little break. And he showed us something else. And this is what he does here. We're in between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And he shows us this little interlude. And it's this picture of this mighty angel. And the mighty angel is really Jesus. I mean, it sure does look like Jesus. He's robed in a cloud. He's got a rainbow over his head, just like the throne that we saw in chapter 4. His face is like the sun. His legs are like fiery pillars, which is like the pillar of fire that led Israel in the desert for 40 years. See, he's got this little scroll. His voice sounds like the roar of a lion. So it sort of looks like Jesus. I mean, I guess you could debate it, but it's pretty certain that it's Jesus that John's referring to. And he has a special message for John. He wants John to do something for him. And so in essence, he goes, hey, John, I want you to come up here. And you look at chapter 10, verses 9 through 11, and this, this mighty angel, Jesus, he gives John... A scroll. Because I want you to take this scroll, it's my word, and I want you to eat it. Now, you and I might not catch this exactly because we're not Old Testament experts, but John's first audience probably did. This is reminiscent of the same thing that God did with the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Ezekiel. He had them eat a scroll. And the scroll was sweet in their mouth and bitter in their stomach. Same thing happened, and it's a picturesque, it's a symbolic way of saying that the prophet embodies the Word of God, that the prophet is not just speaking as a third party, 
you know, a distant relative, but the prophet actually is carrying the word of God. And so now as this prophet speaks, he's speaking the word of God to the people. That's kind of what he's saying. The word goes in. And the word is bittersweet. And isn't that your experience? It is mine. Sometimes I read the Bible and it's so sweet, I'm drawn to tears. And other days I read and it cuts like a knife, doesn't it? Have you not tasted the bitterness of God's word at times? Are there not things in this scripture that bother you, stir you up? Maybe even revelation. Maybe even this message is one of them that does that. It's bittersweet. And this is John's experience. So in essence, chapter 10 is John's calling, if you will, to bring this prophetic word to who? Chapter 11, to the church. The first thing that John does, now that he's a prophet, now that he's called up, if you will, is he grabs this reed, this measuring reed. He starts measuring the temple. You see that in chapter 11, verse 1? He's given a reed. That's weird. It's really weird, especially since John is living in 90 AD, and the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So John's measuring a temple that no longer existed in his day. So what's John doing? (laughs) You're measuring this. It's rubble at this point. Well, by the time you come to the 90s AD here in John's day, it was fairly well understood amongst the church that the people of God are the temple of God. The Apostle Paul wrote about it. We see scripture, we see verses like that in the New Testament, talking about you and me as the temple of the living God, right? The people of God are the temple of God. And so this is John's way in chapter 11 of basically saying, hey, I got a message for the church. And he talks about these two witnesses, and these two witnesses represent the church. And these two witnesses are, are giving their message. You say, well, why? Why two witnesses? Well, Scripture's pretty clear in the Old Testament that you can't have a testimony without the testimony of two or three witnesses. So we have these two witnesses. It's also because, you know, you and I aren't called to be um, the church by ourselves. You know that? You notice that? That we're in community for a reason. So like me as an individual, I'm part of the church, but I'm not the church. But all of us together... We're more like the church, but we're still not the church, are we? I mean, you got to get us all together. Like, that's why why prayer tonight, like we do on the Sunday, first Sunday night of the month, is so special to me. It's an expression of the church, you know, more than just me, more than just New River. I mean, the best we can do is get the churches in our town together, and we pray together. It's, It's that. So we have these two witnesses. It's not just one, it's two. We're together. It's community. And the other thing that he does is this. He alludes, let me just read this for us. Chapter 11, um, verse uh, verse 4. He says, They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. Now that's a reference back. Maybe your Bible has it down. Mine does even in the bottom, a note, a footnote. It's a reference back to to Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And, and in that passage, we see this, that Zechariah is a prophet, and Zechariah is given a vision of these, this lampstand and these olive trees, 
And God uses this vision to basically inspire Zechariah to prophesy, to speak to this man named Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was a prince. He was a, a, a political ruler, and he had a difficult job. He had to lead the people of Israel to rebuild the city of Jerusalem after it had been destroyed by the Babylonians. So you can imagine, tough job. And Zechariah has this vision of this lampstand, these olive trees, leading him to speak to Zerubbabel. And he tells Zerubbabel this. Many of you will know this will sound familiar to some of you. He tells Zerubbabel, hey, Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. So John is drawing back from that. And he's saying that the church, how does the church operate? How do we operate? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And is it not true that the best work we do is not done in our own strength? Right? The best work we do, when we are not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, we are at our absolute best, are we not? We are kicking butt, taking names, spelling them correctly, right? I and mean, that's us. We are, we are doing damage to the devil. We're setting people free. We're seeing people healed. We're seeing the dead raised. Like when we're not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, that's when stuff starts to happen, doesn't it? Right? And you see that in chapter 11, don't you? These two witnesses, what are they doing? They are preaching with power. And they are doing miracles, and they are not by might, not by strength, but by the power of the Spirit. They are doing amazing things. And even when their people come against them, they, they're able to stand up against the people that come against them in the power of God. And then something happens. If you're already there, I hope you are. I hope you're looking at it in Revelation 11. They die. They get killed. And not only are they killed... But the rest of the world gloats over their death. The rest of the world is glad to see them gone. They've finally gotten rid of that pesky church. Mm. And as they gloat, God steps in and he vindicates them, doesn't he? They rise again in, in the text here in chapter 11. I'm just trying to tell us the story, but I want you to see this. I'm trying to speed up for the sake of time. So they, they end up, God vindicates the church, and they rise. And then what happens? Now, I'll read this, chapter 11, verse 13. At that very hour, when the church rises, when God vindicates them, at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. There's your clue. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming next week. It says soon, but for us it's next week. So, right? But, but, here's, but we need to catch this. Look at how they responded. They gave glory to God. Isn't that interesting? Um. N.T. Wright says it kind of like this. This is my, this is my, my uh, paraphrase of what he says. But basically, the martyr death of the church, it accomplishes what the first six trumpets can't. 
See, six, six trumpets and all the plagues and all the pain and heartache that comes as a result of it, and they still do not repent. And then the world deflects, and they finally get their revenge on those pesky, those pesky people, God's people, that are just annoying us with their, you know, their preaching. They finally put them out. They finally put them out. But then God vindicates them. And now the world responds by giving glory to God. Now, don't make, don't, don't make the mistake of confusing those. Giving glory to God is not the same as repenting. Many of you have given glory to God, but you haven't repented. It's one thing to acknowledge God, that he's God and he's in heaven and he's in charge. It's one thing to cry, uncle, oh, yep, you got me. It's another thing to actually repent, to actually say, God, I trust you as my Savior. I need you. God, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm giving my life over to you, Jesus. You are the Lord. You are the Savior. See, that's a different thing. But at least it's a step in the right direction. I mean, they give glory to God as a result of seeing this take place. And the message is really powerful, but also disturbing. Remember who John's first audience was? They were persecuted Christians, heavily persecuted. They were dying for their faith in Jesus. Do you see the message that he's just sent to them? Hey, your death, your sacrifice, your suffering, it's for the glory of God. Your death is not wasted. Your sacrifice, your suffering is not wasted. It's for the glory of God. It's the message being given to his first audience. But the message being given to you and me is equally as uncomfortable. We like to think that I become a follower of Jesus and it's just a bed of roses from here on out. And it's beautiful. It's butterflies and cupcakes and song services and we just have a grand old time. That's not the normal Christian life. When I sign up to follow Jesus, I'm signing up for battle. I'm entering the war. See? And the truth is, Christians die. That's the reality of it. The, the, the reality of it is that I can follow Jesus and I'll suffer just as much as everybody else does. Following Jesus doesn't exempt me from suffering and even death. It doesn't. Does it? And, and the message for us is this. Until I'm willing to die for the world, I really don't have much of a platform to preach to the world. It's my willingness to die for them that actually gives me the platform to share the good news with them. See? Because the truth is, this is the reality of, of, what, of the Christian life. There's, there's death, there's suffering, there's work, there's a battle. But it's worth it. Because in the end, God gets glory. See? Have I signed up for that? Maybe you didn't, but I hope you do today. Okay? And here's what's really cool. Now all of this sets up the seventh trumpet. So the six trumpets 
that go bad, from bad to worse, and people don't repent. The earth, the world turns against God's people, tries to kill them and snuff them out. They don't. They rise. God vindicates his people, and the people of earth give glory to God, right? And now God's people are like, we're owning it. We go, yes, I'm in the battle. I know this is not going to be easy. That's what I signed up for. I signed up for difficult. That's what I signed up for. I'm in this. And now he goes, the seventh trumpet. Here we go. Let me read this for us because this is just my favorite one. The seventh trumpet, the seventh angel, chapter 11, verse 18, 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. For destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. And that's the end of the seven trumpets. So you see what the seventh trumpet is? Jesus comes and inaugurates the kingdom of God on planet Earth. The seventh trumpet is the coming of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And he says, and now the kingdoms of the world has become the kingdom of God. Je heaven. You see, Revelation is about an invasion. It's, it's, an inv it's, it's a regime change. It's, it's the regime of the kingdom of heaven coming in and ousting the kingdom of the world and saying, enough's enough, new sheriff in town. And as you can imagine... Though the powers that be who enjoy what they have in this regime are not willing to give up their power very easily, are they? And that's why we have the clash, the struggle. And that's what we see in Revelation. You're seeing this war between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world, and they're colliding. But Jesus comes, he establishes a beachhead on planet Earth in a little manger outside of Bethlehem. Christmas night, the kingdom of God. And what does Jesus say? What's his message? Repent, for the kingdom is here. Repent. You notice he says, don't give glory to God. Repent. He takes people back to repentance. Why? Because the kingdom is here. So change the way you're thinking, change the way you're living, change the way you see. Listen, because the kingdom is so much better than what you've got. Here comes the kingdom, everybody. It's time to change. This is the message of Jesus. This is the seventh trumpet, and I love that. Because you think, wait a second, the first six were so bad, and now the seventh one, Jesus shows up. Do you see the grace and the kindness and the love of God towards people? 
that, that, that here's all the trouble caused by our own sin, and he's trying to let us see this, and we don't respond. We just get more stubborn. And so God sends his own son, it says. While we were still sinners, Romans says, God demonstrates his love for us, and he sent his own son to come and to die for us. See? This is the seventh trumpet. And he takes the kingdom of the world, and he brings it back up into his own kingdom. You see how the kingdom of heaven kind of usurps the kingdom of the world? The kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He'll reign forever and ever. And here's one other thing I want to show you real quick, and then I'm going to get back to that. Verse 17, did anything seem off to you? We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. Anybody notice that there's something missing there? Yeah, and who is to come right? If you go back to Revelation chapter 1 verse 4, it describes him as the God who is, who was, and is to come. And here it's just the God who is and he was. In other words, the kingdom is now. He's here now. The kingdom of God is expanding as we speak. Jesus described it as yeast. You put it in a lump of dough, and it works its way all the way through. We're in the middle of that process right now. God's kingdom is a subversive kingdom working to undo the sinister evil forces of the world. Yeah. And the kingdom of this world becomes his kingdom. And that also means this. Here's the message for us. and I'll, We're going to close here in a second. And that's this. So... All authority is God's authority. And any authority that people enjoy on this planet in this life is merely borrowed. It's, it's, it's on loan from God. And the, the day will come when God calls us into account for how we have used the authority that he gave to us. Look at The day will come when Mr. Putin gives account before God for the way that he used the authority that was given to him. And there will be hell to pay, unless, of course, he repents. But let's not point the finger. Let's just bring it right on home. The same is true for you and me. Same is true for our political leaders here in our, in our you know, anybody in any position of authority, which, by the way, is all of us. You might not be a president, you might not be a mayor or a governor or a senator, you might not be a teacher or a pastor or a police officer, you know, but if you're a father, you're a mother, you have authority in your home. If you're a husband or a wife, you have authority in your home. If you're an individual, you have authority in your, in your home, okay? And the question is, how have you used the authority that God has given to you? Because you will be held accountable for it. See? How about your finances? God gives those to you. You have authority in your financial life, don't you? And you'll be held accountable for how you use those because he gave you authority over those finances. But you can bet you the day will come when he calls that back in and he takes all the authority and he has it and he'll be asking you how you treated the authority that he entrusted to you while you were here. You see? So this 
Seventh trumpet is glorious, but there's a warning in there too because there's a new sheriff in town. The kingdom of heaven is here, and he's calling people to account. See? And that brings us back now just to our closing question. I want to leave us with this. You know, what condition is your heart in today? You know, we, we look at Pharaoh, and he just got more and more hard towards God's working in his country. And we look at the people responding to these six trumpets, and they do the same thing. They, they refuse to repent. But I want to ask you, like, where's your heart at? You say, well, how do I know? Well, let me ask you, how do you respond to the trouble in your life? Do you deflect? Let's blame somebody else for the trouble in your life. Or do you own it? Like, that's there as a result of my sin. I've made choices that are wrong. Yeah, right? See what I mean? Where are you at? What, what's the condition of your heart? And I ask you, how much pain do you have to endure before you change? Where's your breaking point? At some point, you have to say this stubbornness isn't working well for me because it's just causing more trouble, causing more trouble for my family, for my marriage, my home, my life. It's just causing more trouble. And you put us all together, and it causes even greater trouble. It's collective trouble. It's the worst kind, doesn't it? At some point, we have to bow our knee before God and say, I am sorry, God forgive me I need you I wave the white flag I'm done resisting done rebelling done being stubborn I'm yours God at some point my prayer for you is that today is that day for you <clears throat> for some of us it might even be simpler than that like I alluded to a moment ago. How long does it take for us to apologize when I know I've done something wrong? Maybe this morning, that's just where you're at. It's that simple, it's that small. And you're just stubbornly resisting, making the phone call, stubbornly resisting, taking the step to make it right, you know? Because this is just how we are. I want to encourage you this morning. Let's be done with that today, right? Let today be the day you repent. Today be the day you make that right. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.